Well, again, good morning. That always feels like a weird commercial break when you talk right before. But here I am. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, in all seriousness, I know it probably took a little extra for you to get out of bed and to get here, so I really, really appreciate that. Just turn, maybe somebody close to you or nearby, and just say, I'm really glad that you made it. Just remind them. Say, I'm really glad that you made it. So I'm glad that you made it here. I'm glad you're here. It's just better, you know. It's just better. Better with you here. Uh, here's what this may be true of your family. You may be watching online right now because this is true. Uh, like kind of everybody right now, our family, between Lindsay, Lennon, and myself, have just been trading viruses around. Anyone else have this in your family right now? It's like, hey, do you want this flu? Sure, sit with me. I'll give you the flu. Okay, how do you want this virus? I'll give you this virus. Like, that's kind of been our reality. So I got home from Guatemala, got some kind of virus there, uh, got sick, was out for the week. Then Lennon got sick. She had to get pulled out of daycare or school, as we call it. We pulled her out of school, and then Lindsay is now uh, plagued to it. So we're trying to all get better before Thanksgiving, like probably all of you. But here's what I found. As a parent, there's some life hacks that can make having a sick kid easier. You know what I'm saying? If you're, if you're a parent in the room, you already know. Like, you've got your specific things. And then one of the first things I found out over these last couple of weeks was that my daughter, Lennon, she's about 18 months old, is obsessed with sticker books. She's just obsessed with them. Like, there's tons of coloring pages, could care less. All she cares about is flip to the very back of the book and find the 500-plus stickers uh, that she can have access to. And here's why I know she loves them, because they end up in my shoes. They end up on the refrigerator. They end up all over the living room. I had, we had a, a guy come into our house, look at something uh, in our furnace, and he was like, your kid likes stickers. I was like, yep, they do. They're obsessed. In fact, any meltdown, any cold, flu, whatever she has will be fixed if you just get her a sticker book. Like, she will forget about all the symptoms. And besides Blippy, like, that's the only surefire way to make sure that Lennon's going to be happy. Uh, if you have kids, you get that. If you don't, just forget it. Um, but there is a catch. There is a catch to this, and you need to know this. This is important parenting. There's a catch to this because Lennon loves stickers, no question. But as soon as that sticker gets on her hands or on her feet, game over. The stickers are no longer fun. She is like over it. She will literally rip them off her hands like she's got leprosy. Like she's pulling them off. She'll see them on her feet. She'll reach down and try to rip them off her feet. She'll look at me like, Dad, why'd you let the sticker get on my foot? Like I'm to blame somehow for her getting stickers on her hands. Uh, it's okay if it's on my face, but not if it's on her face. She's like totally against having any stickers on her body. Now, all of us have a body. You showed up here in a body. You're not just a brain in some kind of simulation. You are actually here in the flesh, or you're sitting on, on your couch or at your table online. You're there. And here's what I know. Every single one of us on some level, and we'll talk about this as we get further into the text, but on some level carries a broken body. All of us. It doesn't matter who you are. You may be in the best shape of your life. There's still areas or compartments or, or places in your life in which when you think about your body, when you interact with your own body, you look in the mirror or, or uh, you go on a first date or you, or you get to the hockey track, whatever it is, has some kind of flaw that you're keenly aware of. All of us, in fact, have broken bodies. It's a symptom of the fall. It's a symptom of sin in our world. And we're going to talk about how is, how is the good news, how is it good news for our body? 
how does what Jesus has come to do, how does who Jesus is, how does that bring good news into the shame and the brokenness we carry in our physical bodies? And we're really going to, to one chapter in the Gospels. If you have a Bible or you have a device, go to John 4 with me. We're going to kind of jump around in the story, but as long as you got the chapter available, uh, you'll be good. So John 4, and we're going to start in verse 4, uh, and then we're going to kind of work through the story slowly together. So if you have a Bible or a device, pull it out, and we'll, uh, we'll walk through it. John 4, verse 4. Now, he, this is talking about Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. I want to pause there. Uh, if you look at just basic geography, Jesus does not have to go through Samaria to where he was going. It's, it's like saying, I'm trying to get to Lansing, but man, I got to hit Chicago first. <laughs> it's like, what? It's totally opposite direction. It's out of the way. Uh, it's just not, not where you're supposed to be going. And so it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. We're going to find out why. So, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Why is the time significant? The gospel writer John says it's noon. He's trying to give us a specific time stamp on the story. Because what's about to happen is going to reveal that noon is actually really, really important. See, if you're in the middle of Israel, in the middle of the desert in the summer, what time of day do you not want to walk miles and miles and miles, carry big jugs of water, and then go home with? Probably noon. You know, like the afternoon is not the time. Uh, when we launch Center Church Phoenix campus, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, so you'll get it. But, but for here, for here that, that time is really significant. So verse 7, here's why it's significant. A Samaritan woman comes up to this well to draw water. She's coming to, to meet a basic need. It's water. You need water. You're in the desert or not, you need to drink water. So she's coming to get a really basic need met, and Jesus is there. And maybe for this interaction, maybe he was getting water. It doesn't really say, but Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had left him at the moment, had gone to pick up lunch for themselves. He says, will you give me a drink? But the Samaritan woman immediately kind of parrots back to him why this is a bad idea. Listen to what she says. She literally says, um, I'm not sure that's a good idea. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Basically saying uh, sin, division, ha has kind of interrupted this relationship between Jews and Samaritans. In, in the Jewish mind, Samaritans essentially were dogs, half-breed, not real people. And to Samaritans, Jews were super elite, religious, snobby, kind of stuck-up people, they just didn't interact, and you see her. She literally says it. She's like, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk normally. We don't really get along. Like, we're pretty divided across political lines, across religious lines, across economic lines. Like, we're different. But listen how Jesus responds. He answers her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked, asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, we know Jesus talks about himself, way, truth, life, but he also talks about himself here in the story as being the living water. He's literally pointing to himself. He's saying, if you knew that the living water, the healing touch of God, the, the power of God was right in front of you at this well, you, you would have asked for something much greater uh, than, than just a mere drink or mere filling up your gallon that, that you brought with you. Verse 11, sir, 
she immediately responds, and she gets into logistics. Sometimes we do this with God. It's like, hey, I know you want me to do something, but what about this? What about this? What about this? This is what she does. She goes, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Are you going to go in there with your hands and get this, like, quote-unquote, living water? She goes, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us a well drink from himself, as did his sons and his livestock? And then Jesus closes a part of the story we're going to kind of stop on by saying this. He literally says, it's verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. Like You can drink for a while, but eventually you're going to get thirsty. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the end of the story is beautiful because eventually Jesus kind of calls out something that's broken in her life, which we're going to get back into, and eventually she becomes kind of an evangelist. She goes and shares. She, she starts to preach her hometown, and they all get, it's this incredible kind of finalization of the story. But here's something we need to catch in the story that it's so easy to miss when it comes to talking about the gospel. See, really, if you look at it in her story, and in our story, there are really three relationships that sin breaks and, and actually and kind of causes us to carry shame in. Three relationships that are broken and we carry shame in. The first is our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with God, with the one who created us. This is classic as Adam and Eve, right? They sin, they do something they're not supposed to, they deliberately disobey God's command, and then they feel shame. They're aware of the brokenness that has entered the world. We carry shame in that. Second is our relationship with the world. Not just creation like nature, but also people. Whether it's your neighbor, your boss, your spouse, your best friend, your sibling, we carry shame in those relationships. And sin, as you know, keenly breaks those relationships. When we let it lead, when we let it lead the way, it ends up deteriorating our human relationships with one another. Where we're going today is to talk specifically about one that we rarely talk about, but every single one of us feels. We rarely name this, we rarely address this, but it's something every single one of us, almost on a daily basis, have to wrestle through and come to grips with. And sin breaks and forces us to carry shame in our relationship with ourselves. It's our body and our mind, primarily. There's now a disconnect between how God has created us and wanted to, to live and how we interact when it comes to our bodies. This is really what we're talking about today. To give you kind of an easy window into this, like you've maybe have areas of your life like this, but about a year ago, I started something I never thought I would start. It was like something I was like, that's for other people, that's weird, I would never do that. And now I find myself a year later doing it. And some of you, I think I've shared with a few of you, like, I started about a year ago in the, the mixed martial art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and that is as snobby as I can put it, you know? <laughs> I don't know how to say that in like a non-weird way, but basically it's kind of this unique mix of wrestling and submission. It's kind of what they use in the UFC, like you're trying to submit the other person. And so a couple days a week, I trained that in the mornings, and eventually it got to this point where it's like, if you're going to get better, you got to compete against somebody. Like, you can only practice so long before you got to try out, like, what are your skills like? And so, my moment came. My moment arrived. So, at the DeVos place, they held this tournament, and I signed up, and I get down there, and I am super nervous. 
I mean, maybe like you when you do your wrestling tournaments, you're, you're nervous about who am I going to face? How's this all going to go, right? Well, this one had a specific, I'm cheap, so I wanted to get the most matches for my money. So this one had eight scheduled matches on this Saturday afternoon. And so I get in there, it's match one. John Gorvet, I step up to the mat and I'm just like ready. I'm like kind of gearing up. I'm like, who am I going to face? Like, I hope this guy's small. That's basically what I said. I was like, I hope he's tiny. I hope he's really skinny. He's out of shape and I just can crush this dude. That's what in my mind. Well, Miguel Mendez walks up. He's like, hey, I'm ready. And I was like, holy crap, you were 6'4. Like, the dude was big. He was like almost, it felt like double my height swole. He had clearly cut weight to get to the weight division I was in. I didn't. I just ate my way, you know, into the division, and he was like the opposite. So he gets on the mat, and I'm just kind of looking up at him like, this is going to be really bad. Now, the first thing I did as soon as he walks out onto the mat was I started to assess. Maybe you've done this in certain scenarios. You're like, okay, how strong is this guy? I'm kind of looking at his arms like, all right, I'm kind of looking at, like, okay, his calves are massive. That's a bad thing. You know, like I'm looking around, like he is ripped. The dude is a tank. He's way taller than me. And I'm just like, and I'm doing this. I'm kind of assessing his body to figure out, am I going to crush him or is he going to crush me? And you can guess how the, the outcome happened. But <laughs> Miguel crushed me that day. You know, Miguel felt pretty good about that. Uh, it was a quick one, um, but I just couldn't believe it, and, and I, what was so fascinating is as I lost five minutes later, I kind of walk off the mat knowing I've got seven more of these today. This is going to be really interesting, but what I felt was immediately was some of us, all, all of us actually really have felt this, was maybe not in the degree that some of us feel it, but I immediately felt embarrassed, I felt shameful. I was like, I'm, I should be lifting more. My cardio wasn't there. I should have a better diet. Like, I should be more trimmed. I should be more agile. Like, I immediately started just to kind of work through and kind of hate certain parts of my body. It was a weird experience. But every single one of us has had that experience. You look at someone else in the gym. You look at that mom, that dad. How do they have time? You know, like, you look at that spouse. You look at an ex. Look at a best friend or a sibling even. Like, how did God give them, like, the perfect genetics, and here am I? You know, like, we all have, have encountered that. Like it or not, that's something all of us face. And what happens is we eventually begin to heap shame on ourselves. It's not even other people. Sometimes it's a critical word. Just like Lennon, we're trying to get the stickers and labels off us and get the shame off our body and try to figure out a way around it, yet we just keep making a mess. That's what happens. And sometimes maybe you face this. And it's real. There are, there's contempt and hate that comes into our body when we've been hurt. Maybe that's emotional. Maybe it's sexual. Maybe it's physical. Uh, but where someone has hurt us or abused us, and what ends up happening is if we don't offload that, we don't surrender it, we don't get healing, we'll end up turning that, just like sin always does, back on ourselves. We begin mistreating ourselves. We begin devaluing ourselves. We begin looking at things that make us feel good. We begin avoiding our spouse or avoiding the ones closest to us and finding fulfillment in other ways, and it ends up bringing more and more shame to us. And this is exactly what would have happened. If you keep reading, go back after uh, Jesus says the line about living water, verse 15, listen, the woman responds, here's what she says, sir, give me this water. I want it. 
I don't want to be thirsty ever again. I don't want it to keep coming here. And he told her, this is like, this is why Jesus is so brilliant. And at the same time, I'm so unlike him. Like, I would be way more nice than he is. He literally goes, go, call your husband and come back. And then she responds, I've got no husband. You called me out here. You're, you're seeing beyond my need for hydration. And then he says, you are right. You're right. When you say you have no husband, verse 18, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, immediately be like, man, Jesus, like, that's kind of coming on strong. Back off a little bit. Like, she's clearly had a difficult Pass and, and broken relationship after broken relationship. But Jesus is not just after kind of fixing the immediate need. Like she wants to talk about water, and he's like, How about we talk about how to get healed? How about we talk about living water that's going to be the solution, that's going to be the source for all the healing, all the grace, all the mercy, all the truth, all the, all the relationship you need, the identity you need? It's all in me. Just come to me. Is essentially what Jesus is saying. And you know what John 4 declares just with a megaphone? Jesus says, if you surrender, if you confess, if you recognize your need for healing in your body to be freed and released from shame, I've got grace for you. I've got a ton of mercy and healing and power and transformation for you, freedom from shame. And a lot of us, unfortunately, grew up in environments, even if you grew up in church, where we believe like the gospel is for my heart, but it's not for my body. It's just like this spiritual transaction I need to make, and then I've still got to deal with all the shame I feel every time I wake up and look in the mirror. And Jesus is saying, I'm interested in whole transformation. I'm interested in shalom. I'm interested in total transformation inside and outside. And even Christians, I mean, we struggle with this. You may think like, I, I, I don't ever think about that. But, but I guarantee you've had moments, maybe not recently, but you have had moments in which you've experienced shame. And there's all kinds of brokenness when it comes to our sexuality and our, even our physical bodies. A couple examples of this that just kind of struck me this past week. 20% of Christians polled a couple years ago said that one-night stands were almost always, if not always, right. There's something off there. There's something broken about that. There's something not right. There's something belittling of our human physical bodies when that becomes okay, when that becomes normal. Here's another one. Less than 48% of Gen Z, the generation behind mine, don't identify as heterosexual. Again, I don't say that to heap shame on people who, who wrestle through same-sex attraction and all the cult, kind of cultural wars that are happening around sexuality. I say that to say sin, if it does anything, it disconnects our body from the way God has created us. It disconnects our body and our mind. There's a tension that is at work, at play in us, and all of us are sexually broken in different ways as a result. Uh, even things like health. A couple years ago, my dad had a heart attack, and that, that was, I mean, you take any heart attack and, and get real about it. It's a result of poor diet and poor exercise. It's very controllable to avoid, for the most part, a heart attack. There's brokenness. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. We experience body brokenness and body shame 
in such real ways. But can I give you the good news? John 4, I mean, just screams this. Like the good news is that our bodies are incredibly broken, but God is an incredible healer. Like our bodies are so broken, it's hard to even begin to try to fix yourself. Begin to try to deal with the shame yourself. But here's the hope. Here's why the gospel is such a breath of fresh air and good news into our culture. It's asking these questions and even our own lives because God is an incredible healer. When you begin the Bible, there's this idea of shalom. It's a Hebrew word. really just means like wholeness, wholeness with God, shalom. From the very beginning pages, it's not like Jesus just decided to start healing people. Like God at the very beginning of the story is interested in this whole life restoration and peace in every part of your world, not just your your heart, not just your spiritual life, but about your sexuality, about your brokenness, about your shame, about your physical body. This is God's heart. This is one of the reasons we celebrate stuff like communion. You ever notice this? I mean, literally every time we do communion, we say it's the body of Christ broken for you. Jesus' body was broken so yours can be healed. That, that's the point of the gospel. That, that's what we're doing. That's why we're still here. That's why the gospel is still incredible news to us. I love what Pastor Glenn Packham says about this. He literally writes, bread that's not broken cannot be shared. That's Jesus, right? Bread that's not broken can't be shared. And that's why this conversation needs to move from a hidden individualized, shame-inducing experience to something that is shared in community. Like, like lies lose their power when they're spoken out in community, when they're defeated in community, when shame is brought to the forefront to Jesus so that he can heal. A couple years ago, I, mean, I remember sitting with a counselor, and, and the classic counselor question, and maybe you've been through counseling, you've got this, is like, so what brings you in today? <laughs> Why are you here? And this guy I trust, I really love him, and he's been a huge influence in my life. He literally started to map out on a whiteboard in front of me some of the lies I was believing. Uh, he said, you know, it's interesting, John. You talk about your diet. You've, you've brought up how you look. You've brought up the fact you run. All these things, you brought them all up a lot. Why do you think that is? And the more work we did, the more we uncovered some of those kind of buried down lies, a lot of them had to do with body image or attractiveness or sexual shame, whatever. There's a whole list of things that all of us also wrestle with that it was just, it was powerful for me to see them, to put them out there, to say, these are actually lies. But here's what kept me, I, I was 28 at the time. Here's what kept those from being actually freed and healed in my life. It was a lie I believed. Here's what I believed. I needed to clean it up on my own and that sharing my shame, my sin, would disqualify me from serving God. And actually, that's what a lot of us believe too. There's a lot of us who grew up in great environments, great homes, great churches, but that's the message we received. You bring the shame, you bring the sin, and you're out. Disqualified. You don't get to be on the stage or serve or whatever it is. And that's just not Jesus. That's just not who we just read about in John 4. I mean, the Samaritan woman actually finds healing and transformation when she brings her raw self to God. 
That, that's what happens. That's how he works. And it was after releasing that to, in prayer, talking about it with not just a counselor, but trusted friends and, and, and Lindsay, it was like it just began to loosen. The lives began to loosen. And that's a work that's still happening, to be honest. I mean, there's still healing that God needs to do, but, but it's work that he's doing. And when you place your broken body in the hands of Jesus through confession and prayer and community, what ends up happening is he restores all three broken relationships. It's just how good he is. He restores his, the relationship you have with him. He restores the relationship you have with other people, our world, your coworkers, your friends, your spouse, your, your roommate, whoever. Like he restores that, and he restores that body and mind, our, our relationship to ourselves. He actually makes them whole again, and it's a work only he can do. I stumbled across, um, I'm not super artistic. I, I can be creative if forced. Uh, but I kind of found some interesting artwork. We are talking about this as a teaching team. And it's this Japanese art where essentially, it's called kintsugi, where essentially there are broken vessels, handmade vessels. And what ends up happening is these Japanese artists will take these handmade beautiful vessels that are no longer useful, that are literally broken in pieces, and they will mold them together again and fill the cracks with gold, melted gold. And eventually this gold hardens and it reforms the bowl or the cup or the vessel, whatever it is, into being useful again. And not just useful, but beautiful, really, really cool pieces of art. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that's, that's what we're talking about. Isn't that the good news? Isn't that what... John is trying to depict for us in this story. Isn't this what the woman at the well experienced? She literally says, I've got all these broken pieces of my life. I've got a broken relationship with God. I've got a broken relationship with all these men and, and my family members. And I'm, and I'm at, at the well in the middle of the day when no one wants to be here because of my shame. And, and oh, by the way, I've got my own shame. I've got my own trauma. I've got my own hurt, my own kind of mistreatment that I'm handling and I'm dealing with. And she brings it all to Jesus, and he does what only he can do. He heals. Like, that's the good news. Our bodies, just like hers, are incredibly broken. But God is an incredible healer. And ultimately, that's why we're still doing what we're doing. You want to talk about why does Christmas matter? Why should I take these invite cards and give them away to people? Why should I invite family and friends and coworkers, bosses, DoorDash people, I don't know, McDonald's, I don't know. Where do you go? That's why, because we're still in this business. This is still the work the Holy Spirit is doing. I love what Dr. Preston Sprinkle says about this. He literally writes, Jesus came into our world as a man to embody grace, embodied grace. He left us, that's you and me, people that follow Jesus, to be the body of Christ not a flock of parakeets that repeat Christian jargon, but the ongoing, in the flesh, presence of his grace. We, not just pastors, we, we're the evidence that God's grace is more than just words. Good news is that you and I are equally broken. And the best news is that no matter what level of brokenness you bring, no matter what level of awareness of the brokenness you have you bring, Jesus is an incredible healer. 
he, just like that, that piece of art, wants to put it back together to be useful and beautiful and do something it, it couldn't do before. That's ultimately to reflect the transformation that takes place. But it's not going to happen without prayer. It's not going to happen without confession. It's not going to happen without doing that in community. You cannot do that on your own. You can't. Some of you have tried and failed. I've tried and failed. And so I want to invite you. We're going to take a moment. Peter's going to play and just sing uh, for a few minutes. But I want to actually give us the opportunity to, to work this out. Uh, I'm really thankful. We have an incredible, dedicated prayer team who prays for you every single week, prays for our Sunday mornings, prays for the requests that you turn in, whatever else. And, and there's going to be a couple people just available uh, up front right here in this kind of open space over here. And I want to encourage you. Uh, typically, you talk about a sermon like this, and if you go for prayer, it's like the, the holly, like a walk of shame. It's like, ooh, that person's got some bad stuff going on. They need prayer. I tell you, like, I, I'm going to be the first one to say that, that this is, I need this. And so don't let something that's supposed to free you from shame be the thing that keeps you in shame. You hear me? Don't, don't let that happen. That's not what prayer is. That's not what taking a bold, courageous step is. And so, I don't know, where do you need freedom? Where do you need healing? Where do you need to be released from shame? Or maybe there's someone in your life you love and care about who you know is just bonded, trapped by shame and, and, and abuse and trauma and unforgiveness and, and brokenness in their bodies. And you want to come up on behalf of them, wherever you are. Uh, I'm just going to invite you. Peter's going to play. We're going to have a few minutes to do that, and then Blake's going to come up and close us. But don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't let a seat get in the way, you know, of what you really need to respond to and what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So I'm just going to pray real quick. I'm going to set up that time, and then uh, prayer team will be available. And I just encourage you, uh, seize the moment when it's here. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for uh, the grace you give us. Thank you that when we confess, when we bring not just sin, but our shame and our brokenness and our heaviness to you, you actually give us an easy yoke. You give us an easy, perfectly fitted way to follow you. And you bring us ultimately into freedom, into life into forgiveness, into healing, and all the things that we deeply crave and so often don't get. We try to pull the stickers off of ourselves. And so God, we just come to you. We open ourselves to you. We make space, God, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you do this work. It's not us. And so I just, God, encourage you, or invite you really to move uh, in this time as we come before you with our needs.